And then right afterwards, we have our uh, finance meeting where we take a look at our proposed budget uh, for the upcoming fiscal year. Now, um, we are not a church that has a ton of congregational meetings. In fact, <laughs> we have one, uh, a two-part one, though. It's uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. And um, what we do today is we uh, present the budget. You guys take a look at it. We talk about it. And then next week, what we really want to do for our annual meeting is devote most of the time uh, to hearing from our ministry leaders so uh, they can tell us um, their, their plans for uh, the upcoming year. Um, then we vote on, on the budget, hopefully to approve it uh, next week. So today uh, is our finance meeting. Love to have you stick around. And um, even if you're not a member, uh, this is wide open. You can take a look at it. We have nothing to hide, okay? Um, I believe the youth are going to go to Applebee's during that meeting. So the shorter the meeting, the less your kids spend at Applebee's, okay? So there's an incentive to move it along, okay? Um, let, me, let me grab my um, cheat sheet here. And we'll go over some more announcements. Oh, next Saturday, uh, church picnic at Seneca, down in Seneca, Illinois. There's a map uh, at the welcome table. Um, lunch is going to be at 1230. Okay? So you can come early. There's a swimming pool. It's a very nice facility. Uh, stay as long as you want. The uh, Paulsons are putting that event together um, Food will be provided, but if you could bring a dish to pass, that would be great. Okay. Then next week is our annual meeting. Um, we hear from our ministry leaders. We uh, would like to present and vote uh, in our next elder, Dan Toth. Dan, raise your hand over here. Okay. Um, and then ask Dan to put together a little sheet just letting you know uh, some of his, his church background and experience. So um, for those of you who don't know Dan, he'll have that with him later on today. Right. I hate that. It's not like he's running for office, okay? Um, but it, it is good to know the background of, of your elders, okay? Uh, women's Bible study, Calm My Anxious Heart, on the fourth Thursday of the month. Sign up for that. And then um, Mondays, we start our, our Monday evening um, family nights at Faith Baptist in Batavia. We rent out their, their building on Monday nights. We're going to be starting on September 12th with a potluck, all-church potluck. Um, so put that on, your, uh, on your, your calendar. And then the next Monday uh, is when we will start the Bible studies. All right? That would be September 19th then. Okay? All right. Well, look at this. We have some announcements up here. Uh, that's just what I covered. Okay. Very good. We are going to continue our study of Matthew 13, where Jesus uh, tells seven parables. And these seven parables describe the kingdom of God in its present state. Okay? The kingdom of God has gone through different phases. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God uh, primarily dealt with Israel. And now we move into the church age, which, which is a distinct phase. Then in the future, um, theologians differ on this, but there's a time called the millennium where Christ will return to the earth 
and he will rule here on earth. And then after that uh, is the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, these parables talk about the age we live in, okay, the church age. So here, let's take a look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? All right, should we go get the, the, the roundup and kill the weeds right now? Okay. 29, but he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. No, let the, the wheat and the weeds grow together. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. They go, what in the world does that mean? Well, part two. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So the wheat are believers. The weeds are unbelievers. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Right? The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, that's actually a lot of verbiage, a lot of words to get across a very simple point. Okay, The point is this, just like a field that is growing with wheat and weeds mixed in. Uh, you can't pull out the weeds now or it will ruin the wheat. So wait till the harvest before the separation. That's the way the kingdom of God is now. Believers and unbelievers are commingled together in this world and they won't be separated until the final harvest, until judgment day when they will be separated and the weeds will be thrown into the fire. The wheat will go to be with the Lord and shine like the sun. There will be a judgment day. But until that judgment day, believers and unbelievers are to exist, to coexist together on this planet. Now, 
Um, you go, well, that's pretty simple. That's pretty basic. Well, realize that when Jesus first told this parable, this was shocking. Why? Because their concept of the Messiah coming was that he was going to come dramatically and usher in the kingdom of God immediately and judgment would take place right away. Remember, we looked at uh, Daniel's, uh, actually it was King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel interprets it, but the dream the king has is of a statue. And the head of the statue is gold and the arms and chest are silver the midsection is bronze, and the legs are iron. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't know what this means. What could this possibly mean? And Daniel comes in, and he says, well, that's a prophecy of the world empires. You're the head. This is Babylon. But after you will come another kingdom uh, that's strong, and it will be two parts. It will have arms. It's Murdo, uh, uh, Persia and the Medes, Medo-Persian kingdom. And that's what happened in history. Following that kingdom was another kingdom, the Greeks and Alexander the Great that conquered the world. And then he said there'll be a fourth kingdom uh, as strong as iron, and that was Rome. And the people of Jesus' day said, hey, we're in the Roman Empire right now. We're in this fourth kingdom. And then in his dream, a fireball comes out of heaven, smashes the feet and the toes, and the whole world system falls, and this fireball takes over the earth. And they said, oh, when the Messiah comes, Jesus is the fireball. When the Messiah comes, he will dramatically destroy the enemies of God, root them out, and set up his kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, let's get on with this. Kill those pagans. Kill those Romans. Let's get this thing on. And a lot of us kind of have that same attitude today, don't we? Come on, Jesus, come back. Bring in your kingdom. How long is this pain going to go on? And Jesus says, oh, Something uh, I didn't reveal in the Old Testament is this. I'm ushering in an unknown segment of time in the kingdom of God. A time before I usher in the final segment of the kingdom. A time when believers and unbelievers will commingle together. Now, he didn't explain how long it would be, but we've been in that period for 2,000 years now. Believers and unbelievers are commingling together. Now, um, the question I'm sure that the disciples had and that many of us have is this. Why? Why is God letting evil reign during this period of time? Why doesn't he just come back and end this thing? In fact, in our, our little car drive last night, Josh asked me the question, why doesn't God just take Satan out? Right? Why do we have to have a period of, of mingling with evil? So that's what I want to do. The, the parable is very simple. God has arranged it that during this time, evil and good are commingled. Believers and unbelievers commingle. Why? Now, let me give you three reasons why God has set it up this way. God, why God has not annihilated evil yet. Amazingly, these three points all begin with the same letter, too. Okay? First, first reason is because of his grace, because of his patience toward those who are evil. Kind of the classic passage on this is 2 Peter 3, where Peter writes, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come 
in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, um, this especially happens after somebody makes a prediction. You know, like this Herald Camping uh, a few months ago said that Jesus was coming back on May, was it May 21st? He didn't come back. So all the scoffers go, oh, you Christians, you've been saying he's going to come back and you've been making all these predictions, scoffing and laughing. It, it, the world is going to continue as it always has been. And Jesus is not going to come back in the clouds. There's not going to be a judgment day. You guys are nuts. Well, uh, Peter says one sign that you're in the end times is that that scoffing is going to increase. Right? Now, he says, by the way, uh, they, they argue um, that things are going to continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the principle of uniformity. Okay, they say, you, you're talking about his cataclysmic return. Things are uniform. They're just going to continue going on like they always have been. And Peter comes up with two arguments, and he says, no, things have not always continued. Right? For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of, the, of these, the world that then uh, existed was deluged with water and perished. You forget two things. One, the creation of the world began cataclysmically. It wasn't some slow evolutionary process. God intervened and cataclysmically and miraculously created the world. That's dramatic intervention number one. Dramatic intervention number two, he destroyed the world once with a flood. So don't say that things have always continued. There was a cataclysmic creation, a cataclysmic flood, and there will be a cataclysmic destruction of the earth. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now be careful that you don't turn that into some secret formula to figure out the date of the Lord's return. A lot of people go, oh, God created the world in seven days. And a day is like a thousand years, so we'll be here for 7,000. And, and some people have calculated back to like the day God created the, earth, uh, the world. I think it was like on a Thursday um, October, whatever, I don't know. And they calculate it back and they go, oh, seven years or 7,000 years, 1,000 years are like it. This is not a secret formula. All he's saying is God's time schedule is not your time schedule. Don't read too much into it. Okay? But then he gets down to the bottom and he answers the question, why hasn't he returned yet? Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's gracious toward you, not wishing, some of your translations say not willing, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't he, he come back yet? Lucky for you he hasn't come back yet. 
Because if he had come back before you were saved, you'd be in hell, right? And with every moment he waits, more and more people have the opportunity to be saved, okay? Now, I was going to get into a whole thing about um, who, who does he really wish to be saved. Um, I, I'm going to spare you that whole Calvinist-Arminian debate. Uh, but let, let me say this. I believe it's possible for God to elect people for salvation as part of his sovereign plan. Okay, And there's time scripture talks about that. Read Ephesians 1, read Romans 8, read Romans 9, read Romans 10, read Romans 11, read John 6. Okay, I think election is true. But there are times when scripture says, we're not worrying about his sovereign choice right now. We're going to focus on his heart. And God has a heart of compassion, a heart of grace, a heart of patience, where he does not want people to go to hell. His heart breaks when people go to hell. We see that in Ezekiel. Say to them, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you see his pleading? You know, there's a sense in which when God terminates life and they go to hell, there's a sense in which his justice is satisfied, his holiness is satisfied, and then there's a sense in which it breaks his heart. Let's focus on his broken heart right now. You know, when Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem to die, he looks over the city of Jerusalem, and he knows, in fact, the text says he knows that they are going to reject him and crucify him. And uh, 30 years later, or 40 years later in 70 AD, the entire city is going to be demolished and a million Jews are going to die. Now, does he go, well, according to my sovereign elective plan, my predestined plan, that just has to happen that way? Tough. No. It says this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over this city and he knew they were going to reject him. Right? So, what, what is the point? God has a heart that breaks for lost people. And with every day he waits, there's more opportunity for more people to be saved. Now, let me give you some interesting statistics. Okay, um, Let's just take from 1960. Okay, This is my lifetime. All right? In 1960, you know what the population of the world was in 1960? Anybody know? It was 3 billion. Okay, So I was born in 62... Right? And then after that, uh, Kennedy was shot in 63, and then Bobby was shot, and Martin Luther King was shot, and Vietnam happened, and uh, a lot of, it was a bad, bad decade to be born. And then the Bee Gees came in, and they brought in uh, disco. I mean, it was bad. It was bad, okay? <laughs> All right. So, um, 15 years later, I'm a uh, freshman at Batavia High School. And the population of the world is now 4 billion. So in 15 years. It, it takes 
thousands of years to get up to 3 billion, and then in 15 years we go to 4 billion. And then I get married, and uh, actually it was... No, we didn't get married. What happened in... uh, (laughs) 89, right? Yeah, so we had been married a whole year, okay? But not only that... We had a lot of babies because there, 15 years later, another 5 billion. And then only 9 years later, Josh is born, right? And we have 6 billion, and here we are today with 7 billion. So, in my lifetime, the population of the earth has increased by 4 billion people. Okay? Now, let me give you some more statistics. Here's the world in 1900, 100 and some odd years ago. Okay? Back in 1900, 80% of the evangelical world was in America or Europe. Okay? So 80% of Christians lived in this little section of the world, 20% scattered all over. Today, two-thirds of evangelical Christians live in Asia, Africa, and South America. Okay? In just a hundred years, the map has dramatically changed. In Africa, back in, uh, 19, in 1900, 10% of that continent was Christian. Now it's 50%. It went from 10 million to 360 million people in a hundred years. Aren't you glad God waited? Okay? Let's go to Asia. Well, let's, let's go to South America. <laughs> From, from virtually nobody to now 480 million believers. And by the way, God's Spirit is moving in South America, in Africa, and in Asia, where there's now 313 million believers. China is supposed to be, in just a short period of time, the most populated um, nation, Christian-wise. Okay, this includes all of Asia, but China is going to be uh, is going to be larger than the United States when it comes to uh, believers. Um, by the way, um, God is I, I don't know what He's doing in Europe, not much, and America seems to be following. But don't go, oh, it's horrible that God's not working in the world anymore. He is bringing about revival in the rest of the world. Okay, so um, what is the point? Why has God not come back to judge the world? Because millions, billions are being saved. Aren't you glad that the wheat and the weeds are commingled? Now, let me just say this. I think there's a little lesson in the fact that the wheat and the weeds are commingled. That tells you that the primary way that weeds actually turn into wheat. I know you can't press the analogy too much, but the way the weeds and the wheat, or the, the weeds turn into wheat, in other words, they get saved, is by rubbing shoulders with believers. Okay? Notice it's not a field of wheat and a field of weeds. He has purposely commingled us because we are the means to bring about the conversion of the weeds. Okay? Do you have a heart like Jesus had? Do you look over your city and weep? Do you look at your unsaved family and weep? There's a story of a uh, notorious criminal 
in England. His name was Charles Peace. He was a murderer and a thief, and he was sentenced to be hung. And on the way to being hung, a minister goes up to him and shares the gospel, but he does it kind of like he's bored with this job. And Charles Peace looks at him, and he says, Sir, I do not share your faith, but if I did, if I believed what you say you believed, then although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. In other words, he looked at me and said, Your attitude doesn't match up with your message. Because if you Christians really believed what you were saying, that people were going to burn in hell for eternity, how could you be so bored with the message? Boy, I hope we never fall into a situation where people look at us and go, your life doesn't match up with your message. Now, uh, back to the main point. Wheat and weeds grow together. Why? Why not stamp out and kill all the weeds now? One, because of God's grace. Millions, if not billions, are being saved right now. I'll give you a second reason. Good. God is actually using the evil in the world to bring about good. God has a master plan where even the evil that takes place, He works it around and produces good. Let me, uh, let me retell the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember, Joseph has, he was one of 12 brothers. Jacob was the father. Okay? And um, I, I actually, I, I, as I tell the story of Joseph, I'm going to call it um, the story of six dreams because in his story there are six important dreams. Right? Now, Joseph is the youngest brother. And because he's the little guy, see, the little guys always get away with murder, right? Because he's the little guy, Jacob favors him. And um, the other brothers hate Joseph because he's favored by Jacob. And Jacob, Jacob makes him the coat of many colors. Remember the Technicolor dream coat? He gives it to him, right? And he wears that coat around, and his brothers hate him. And on top of that, Joseph has dreams. And he, he has the audacity to share his dreams with his brothers. He says, hey guys, come here. I had a dream that we were all being represented by a stalk of wheat. And I was in the middle and your wheat was bowing down to me. And then I had another dream that there were 12 stars and I was in the middle. And the stars, your stars and the sun and the moon, they all bowed down to me. And they were furious because he's, he says... Or they said, uh, he thinks he's going to be a king someday, a ruler, and we're going to bow down to him. So they're so furious, they come up with a plan to kill him. But one of the other brothers says, no, don't kill him, throw him in a pit. And uh, then when they're ready to kill him, um, some traitors are going through on their way to Egypt. And uh, the brother says, don't don't kill him, Um, sell him as a slave, at least we get some money. So they sell him into slavery into Egypt, and they go back and tell their dad, hey, we found Joseph's technicolor dream coat. It's full of blood. must have been killed, and Jacob just falls apart. Meanwhile, he's sold as a, uh, a slave to a guy named Potiphar, and he does so well that Potiphar puts him in charge of his house. 
But Potiphar, um, they could do a show, The Housewives of the Egyptians. Potiphar's wife um, takes a look at Joseph and says, good-looking guy. And she tries to seduce him day after day after day. And uh, Joseph refuses. Well, finally, a scorned woman she is, um, she accuses Joseph of raping her. He didn't do it, but she accused him of it. And he is thrown in a dungeon. He's thrown in prison. So he's hated by his brothers. He's sold as a slave. Now he's in prison. But he does so well in prison that they put him in charge of the prisoners. Now, there are two prisoners in prison, the baker of the pharaoh and uh, the cupbearer. The cupbearer actually tasted the, the, uh, the drink before the pharaoh would drink it. To, so if he falls over, then the pharaoh doesn't drink. Um, but they were thrown in jail. And one day, Joseph looks at him and he goes, Guys, you look a little down today. What's the problem? Which I always find funny. We're in prison. What do you mean, what's the problem? Okay. But uh, they said, well, we had some dreams. He goes, oh, I do dreams. I, I interpret dreams. What were your dreams? And the, uh, the cupbearer says, well, I had a dream that there was this vine and three branches came off of it and there were grapes on the branches and I was squeezing the grapes into the king's cup and he was drinking it. And he goes, oh, that's easy. Uh, in three days, you'll be restored to your position. The baker goes, yeah, all right. I'm going to tell him my dream. He says, in my dream, I had three baskets on my head full of bakery goods. But the birds were trying to eat out of the top one. And Joseph says, oh, that's easy. Um, in three days, your head will be lifted from your body. <laughs> he was very truthful with his dreams. Okay? So uh, he says, now when you get out, tell the king about me. So they get out, the cupbearer's restored, and the uh, baker's hung. Okay? I don't even want to go into the butcher. Where's Dave the butcher? Yeah, okay, I won't get into what happened with the butcher, okay? So they, uh, these dreams come true, but the baker, or excuse me, the, the, uh, the cupbearer refuses to talk about Joseph. He forgets about Joseph. Two years, Joseph is rotting away in this prison. But then, the king, the pharaoh, has two dreams. Very disturbing dreams. Um, seven fat cows come out of the the river, and then seven skinny cows come up and eat the fat cows. It's disturbing, right? Then there's uh, here's a dream of seven stalks of wheat, big fat stalks of wheat, and seven little scrawny stalks of wheat eat the fat stalks of wheat. He's troubled. He doesn't know what to think. And the uh, cupbearer goes, oh, forgot. <laughs> there's a guy in prison the Hebrew, who interprets dreams. Forgot about him. And uh, the Pharaoh says, bring him out. So they clean him up and shaves, puts on the aftershave, brute and everything. And they bring him before the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, here's my dreams. And he goes, all right, um, the God of heaven will reveal what that means. There will be seven plentiful years here in Egypt, followed by seven lean years, double-dip recession coming. Okay, so um, Joseph says, if I were you, what I would do is pass a flat tax. 20% of all the grain goes into storage for seven years. Then when the lean years come, we're good to go. And Pharaoh goes, this guy is smart. And then Joseph says, what you need is an administrator to run this whole program. Okay. 
And uh, Pharaoh says, you're the man. So Joseph, in 20 minutes, goes from being an abandoned, hated orphan in the bowels of a prison to now being the prime minister of Egypt. And he saves the world, right? Now, when the famine hits, his brothers back in Israel, they're hungry. And they go, let's go to Egypt. And they travel to Egypt and they go to, to this administrator. They don't know it's Joseph because he's got the Egyptian paint on, you know, like in the movies, right? And finally he reveals, I am Joseph. Now, um, would you be mad at your brothers for throwing you, selling you into to slavery? He's, he's, there's this tension going back and forth. At first he's mad, then he's crying, and then he reveals that he's Joseph. And then, this is the, this is the climax of the story. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That verse gives us insight into this whole tension that we experience in Scripture between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Right? Here's what this teaches. God can ordain events using evil agents with evil intents to bring about good without God being evil. Let me say that again. God can ordain events using evil agents like the brothers, like Potiphar's wife. Right? He ordains these events using evil agents with evil intents. They, had, they intended it for evil. Yet God orchestrates it all together and it brings about good and God is not responsible for the evil. Think about, and by the way, this whole story of Joseph is a foreshadowing, a type pointing to who? Remember the teachers meeting last week? Jesus. Okay. Who else was mistreated by his brothers, by his own people? and abandoned, yet it brought about the salvation of many. It's a picture of Jesus. Think about that. God ordains the crucifixion. The the most uh, unjust thing that ever happened in the world was this innocent Messiah is crucified. And God orchestrates the whole thing, yet he is not responsible for their evil. He uses evil agents to bring it about. Now you go, that's all interesting that this happened to Joseph. What about us? What about us sitting here? Um, what does this have to do with us? Well, the New Testament version of Genesis 50:20 is what verse? Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, is that you? Do you love God? Okay. So this is believers. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What this says is that everything that happens to you, not just the good things, even the bad things, God is working them together for your ultimate good. Okay. Now, let me push this a little further, because some people hear that and they go, oh, well, God is good at cleaning up our messes. God runs behind our messes with a, a dustpan and a broom, and he cleans them up and he makes the best of them. No. 
God's plan from the beginning with Joseph was to make him prime minister. He revealed in a dream before it all happened that this was going to happen. Remember the dream with the stalks of wheat? Okay. Um, the atonement of Christ was not a disaster that happened and then God goes, oh man, this is bad. Well, I know, I'll make lemonade out of lemons. Let's redeem the world. No, it was all pre-planned, yet God does no evil. Okay? People who don't like the idea that God has anything to do with the ordaining of evil acts, they, they say, oh, that, that can't be, that God would uh, be sovereign over uh, even the choices of evil men. Well, here's the alternative. If you don't believe that, then the world is really out of God's control. Why pray to him? He can't do anything. He said, I, I can't do anything. And all he can do is run behind us and sweep up the broken pieces and try to fix, fix it the best he can. I call that the non-sovereignty perspective. The sovereignty perspective, on the other hand, says for believers, all suffering has a purpose. All suffering has a purpose. Now, you may not know, like in the Joseph story, it all came to a happy ending, right? You may not know what that purpose is until you get to heaven. Right now, it's kind of like, you know, the ladies who, who embroider and they're working on their embroidery thing. If you look at the back side, it's just all these strings and it's just, but you turn it over and you go, wow, it's a beautiful picture. Right now, your life may feel out of control and a mess and there's pain, but Romans 8:28 and Genesis 50:20 tells you that when you get to heaven, you're going to go, ah, God is brilliant. And right now, what I want you to do is just trust him. Just trust him. See, we want to we want to know why why would you allow that? I don't have the answer. And we may not have it until you get to heaven. But I do know this, that whatever pain you're going through, God is working it all together for your ultimate good. Okay? That's the second reason why God has allowed evil to coexist with good. Right now, he's actually using the evil agents to bring about ultimate good in your life. Okay? Now, last one, really quick. Why does God allow evil and good to coexist? so you can bring him glory. Okay? Coexisting in an evil world where you experience pain and you experience betrayal and you experience um, persecution allows you to bring God glory by staying faithful to him even in the midst of that pain. Interesting little verse here. It's the end of John's Gospel. And um, Peter has been restored. Jesus has forgiven him. And Jesus and Peter are walking down the beach on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Okay, You had total control over your life. You could go fishing and do whatever you want. But when you are old... You will stretch out your hands, and this is a, uh, 
uh, a reference to crucifixion. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. You will be crucified. And we know from church history, Peter was crucified. And he was crucified upside down. Okay. But look what Jesus says. This he said, and by the way, this is in parentheses, but it's in, it's in the original. Okay, So this is John commenting on this whole thing. This he said to show by what kind of death, you would think he would say he was going to die. But look what he says. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. This horrendous crucifixion of Peter was an opportunity to glorify God. When we encounter pain and persecution and even martyrdom, yet we refuse to give in and we stay faithful, it is an opportunity for us to bring glory to God. So rather than us, and we are so conditioned in America to live for comfort, what we should say is, this pain, this persecution is an opportunity for me to stay faithful to Christ and bring Him glory. We, uh, we just started football and... Um, there's on Josh's team, there's uh, uh, all these kids go through football and soccer and everything together. And there's a family that's been involved, and um, there's a dog. They bring their dog to the soccer games and to the football games. Beautiful dog. And he's obedient. Weird. Okay. Um, the, the, the owner will tell this dog, he doesn't even have him on a leash, he says, sit. And he'll walk to the other field, and that dog will sit there. Little kids will pet him, and he'll just sit there. And you call him, and he will not come to you. Then the master over on the other field will go, that dog goes right to him. Right? Now, um, I love that dog. Okay? But when I look at the dog, yeah, the, his obedience brings glory to himself, but you know who his obedience really brings glory to? The master. That master must have put in a lot of time with that dog. Let me close with this uh, very similar story. Archibald Rutledge wrote that one day he met a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. Heartbroken, the man explained to Rutledge how it happened. Because he worked out of doors, he often took his dog with him. That morning, he left the animal in the clearing and gave him a command to stay and watch his lunch bucket when he went into the forest. My dog would have eaten the lunch bucket. Okay. Watch that, Tucker. <laughs> Barkley, right? Okay. His faithful friend understood, for that's exactly what he did. Then a fire started in the woods, and soon the blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left. But he didn't move. He stayed right where he was, in perfect obedience to his master's word. With tearful eyes, the dog's owner said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do, because I knew he would do it. Now, you go, being obedient to death? What good is that? We all get resurrected and spend eternity in heaven, right? It's no big loss when you look at it from, eternal, from an eternal perspective. Yes, it may be hard to coexist in this sinful, painful world, 
but let's look at it as an opportunity to bring glory to our Master. All right, let's pray. Let's have the worship team come on up. Father, I know that there's a lot of pain in this room. And while this message may not have taken any of it away, hopefully it has given us eternal perspective. Lord, may we, may we understand that the longer you wait, the more millions get saved. Lord, may we trust that you are working even the worst of pain together for our ultimate good. And then, Lord, may we take it as an opportunity to bring you glory as we stay faithful to you. And may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.